Welcome to the Daily Canon Podcast. Here to talk all things Arsenal is your host, Matthew Wade. Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another Daily Canon weekly podcast. We're slightly later in the week this week, partly because there was, you know, midweek game as well, and we wanted to make sure we covered that, but also probably more importantly because it also was the amazing uh, and slightly underwhelming transfer deadline day, or at least underwhelming from an Arsenal perspective. Uh, but we're going to talk about both those things, and to join me talking about that is the far more interesting for you, Paul Williams. How are you, Paul? Very well, thank you, mate. I have enjoyed my day of freedom away from the office. Well, there we are. Uh, yes, and I've been tarting around being an actor today, so that's been quite entertaining uh, for me. Uh, but I won't bore you, listeners, with that because uh, you're probably not interested. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I was planning to lead with, and so still might as well lead with transfer deadline day. Uh, which didn't even have the amusement of Sky Sports reporters being uh, harassed with dildos to uh, <laughs> to entertain us from our perspective. It was just a slightly excruciating weight towards disappointment. What uh, is the world coming to? Yeah, you I can't know. even get a reporter being slapped with a dildo on transfer <laughs> deadline day anymore. It's just the state of the world today, Matthew. And it has to be said, given some of those uh, who are uh, a regular part of Sky Sports... Uh, deadline day coverage and their previous track record when it comes to just talking about anything uh and a uh a, a bit of dildo abuse is pretty too good for them but anyway we won't go too deeply <laughs> down that path <laughs> um so yes uh the big one from an arsenal perspective was like oh god no we've suddenly got no midfielders that can play in a defensive role who are we going to buy? Who are we going to buy? Uh, we're going to buy Douglas Louise who scored against us only the other day. Oh no we're not uh, and apparently, according to a few bids we put into, Aston Villa, um, as is their right, decided they would prefer to keep an unhappy player who won't renew a contract and they don't play very much anyway, uh, rather than uh, profit to £25 million, which normally I'd be like, yeah, fair enough. It's too late for them to replace him. But given that they also then replaced him during the day and and, and then... There was various leaked reports making it very clear that they wouldn't sell him to us. <laughs> yeah, are they still Despite the fact they were sort of accepting offers, and they were, so they would accept offers, but not from Arsenal. This is weird. Yeah, I, I don't know if they're still upset with us because we didn't sign the uh, Seldom and Mill Smith Row last summer when they thought that they were going to have a much better season than we were, if anyone can remember back as far as 12 months ago. Um I I kind of, as you know, I, I kind of tune out of transfer gossip um, generally. And I have to say that um, the Arsenal forum that I've been on uh, this week, they've been very exercised with transfer deadline day and who were we going to sign? And now we haven't. There's a whole load of angst. And I just feel the squad is the squad that we have. And I think that... For me, obviously, at the moment, it's a little bit scary because we haven't seen loads of Sambi Lakonga playing as the six. Although he had, a, for me, a really excellent first half against Villa on Wednesday night. And it feels like we're one injury away from possibly having to see Granite Xhaka back in that role again. Well, we are one injury away <laughs> from seeing Granite Xhaka back in that role again, which is a little bit frightening. So I do get there's a little... I, I, as a, 
you know, it feels like we're a little bit light. But I also kind of feel if we're going to continue to employ Thomas Partey at the club, we kind of have to accept that he's a little bit brittle. I think the Elneny injury is obviously quite unfortunate. I, I don't know. Has it even been said what the injury is beyond the hamstring that's going to keep him out for months? Yeah, that's all that's been said. Uh, Which is like, what the hell has he done? Because I tore my hamstring and I was back in six weeks and I'm not a professional footballer. And also given that he seemed fine uh, throughout the the game in which he he sustained the injury. Um, Yeah. So that's which either, either means he was more badly hurt than anyone realised during the game, and is just harder than we all thought, or uh, or it means that it's just an incredibly unlucky freak injury. Or um, it, yeah, I, I guess it's um, if if you're just hovering around the centre circle, um, getting the ball and giving it, maybe <laughs> maybe you can style it out a little bit. But um, I, and the other thing I think it would be obviously, I mean, Arteta's kind of made Arsenal's bed to some degree in saying that we wanted to get a winger in, particularly with Pepe being allowed to go on loan. Mm. But I also look at that and think, well, we've signed Marquinhos, and I know he's only 19, but we signed Gabriel Martinelli from the Brazilian fourth division when he was 18. Possibly even younger. I think he was. Was he, was he eight, 17 or eight? Whatever. Yeah, he was yeah. younger than Marquinhos is now. Um, and Marquinhos has played at a slightly higher level. And we have, and we, I keep coming back to this one. Um, you know, maybe this is Reese Nelson's opportunity to get some time in the uh, Europa League team. If he can get fit. Yes. If he can get yeah. fit. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we all know that for some reason, uh, Thomas Partey has suddenly picked up a developed a, a fragility since coming to Arsenal that wasn't pre- present previously in his career, and one presumes that's to the fact that the Premier League operates at a considerably higher intensity level, match to match, than every other league in Europe. Um, but uh, the Elneny injury is really a shocker because, I mean, Elneny. Uh, I was actually looking at the stats. Elneny's missed seventeen games due to injury in nine years. So wow. he's going to miss, by the sounds of it, more games due to injury this season than in the previous nine years, having only had one injury of, of any consequence at all, and even that was like seven or eight matches or something in that time. And yes, he had was didn't play all that much for Arsenal, but you know, went on loan and in periods of Arsenal he was playing regularly. And of course, you'd actually players that play less tend to pick up injuries more easily in a way. Um, so it's just very bad luck and of course had it happened perhaps a game earlier we may have had enough time to to, to do more ab- about recruiting someone in that position but when you're having to sort of play chicken on literally on the last game of the seat uh, last day of the transfer window um when ultimately you haven't been looking to recruit in that position prior to that it is a, it is a difficult difficult thing to achieve particularly when ultimately you know you're trying to really buy someone to cover that period until the January chance window opens which of course as we've discussed before there are lots of games but it's still like two and a half months three months and then there's a break um 
I think there's only actually 12 league matches before the World Cup takes place. Yeah, 12, 12 league matches. And then obviously there are a couple just the other side of the, of, of the World Cup before the transfer. Yeah, sorry, that's right. 10 plus 2. Yeah. yeah um, and But of course, there are uh, there's the Europa League group stages, which uh, w- also will place more pressure on the squad. And so as a th- you would end up in a situation is, well, you... Are you buying someone? So if you're going to be buying someone to justify spending a fee on someone, you kind of need to get someone who you think can be the long-term squad El Nenny or a potential party competition replacement. And of course, that's very hard to do. Well, certainly that is very hard to do at a short notice. And particularly as there are FFP considerations. You know, it's disappointing we weren't able to, after being linked to them, every week for a year that we weren't able to get Artur Mello on loan ahead of Liverpool. But I guess he's not exactly a league-ready replacement, is he? And, and ultimately, our position of desperation is rather more in the immediacy. Um, you know, we're, we, we don't yet know the full extent of, of the injuries that we do have in that role. Um, and, and then, of course, other options. There's no point buying someone that you don't really want for a fee if they're only going to be used for half a season ultimately and so that was the, the difficult position where you know uh, obviously it seems like they went in for Douglas Louise and he's a player that we had looked at before but there's nothing to suggest he's the, the sort of long-term option in that position uh, and, and as discussed Villa didn't really have a huge incentive to sell because Premier League teams uh, don't need the money you know, the TV money means that if there's someone they think can be useful to them or they don't want to sell, the hit of letting them leave on a free after a season is not as great. And I suppose from Villa's position, as they somewhat unexpectedly find themselves in potentially a relegation battle, um, why on earth would they let one of their better players leave even if the manager refuses to play him because of his contract standoff? Um, and of course, the other big linked name has been Tielemans, who's more of an eight than a six and hasn't exactly been tearing up trees at the start of this season for Leicester, who again, have, because of their own desperation, have been hanging on to a slightly unrealistic valuation for him in his contract situation uh, because they're scared they might get relegated given the way that their form has been end of last season or start of this season. So, uh, you know, we're all left slightly shitting ourselves and. It, I suppose if you want to be critical, you could question whether keeping the promise to let Ainsley go on loan uh, was sensible from an Arsenal perspective. But I, I guess once you've made that promise to a player, you can't suddenly U-turn on it very easily without leading to more disgruntlement from a player who's already clearly even disgruntled. <laughs> yeah, and also I, I just think with Ainsley, <laughs> as painful as it is for me to say, he's just clearly not part of Mikel Arteta's plans. So... I think, I mean, we are almost in the hell freezing over situation, but it does feel a bit like hell would have to freeze over for Maitland-Niles to be given a a game. Um, I don't think he's made any of the, the match day squads this season, um, even though you know, we have started to pick up a couple of injuries now. Um, I just, he, he needs to move on, and I yeah, think... Yeah. Um, Arsenal need to move him on. Yeah, I mean, what they've done is obviously they've sent him to Southampton on loan with uh, 
with a and with an automatic extension to a contract, so he'll come back with a year left. But at Southampton, I think we'll have an option to buy. I can't remember if, if that was actually included in the deal mm. in the end. But it makes sense because Southampton have just lost their new defensive midfielder Lavia for injury for six weeks uh, out of out of nowhere, having had a good start to the season. So they're a bit short in that area. Um, and I guess the, the problem that Ainsley reached with us was different, but there are similarities with the issue with Pepe, really, which is a, a player who has a lot of talent, but rarely shows the in-game consistency within a 90-minute period to feel like he's someone you can rely on to implement a game plan because, you know, Ainsley has lovely moments within a game and is capable of doing great things, but is also capable of switching off and just carelessly giving possession away for 10 minutes. And that's definitely, you know, you can times that by three for Pepe, who could, you know, in any given game could score from 25 yards out or could spend the entire game giving the ball away cheaply on the right flank and you never know which you're going to get. Um, and I guess for a for a systemic manager like like Arteta, it's a bit too much to take um, because everything's dependent on other pieces working. Whereas I could see both of flourishing better under someone like Wenger, who was a bit more free from jazz anyway, so a bit of chaos that didn't bother him so much. Uh, which is, of course, one of the reasons why he had brilliant players. Everything worked wonderfully, but when the players were less good across the board. We would score lots of goals and then let and but be a defensive shit show. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you, you know it's uh, horses for courses, really. Uh, both approaches have their merits and demerits, uh, but we now find ourselves in a situation where suddenly Matt Smith was getting featured in the program, having not really, you know, having previously been most famous for making the bench in the cup final um, uh, after two seasons on loan in League One. And he could easily find himself getting Europa, Europa League football this season, uh, which I don't think anyone has foreseen. Yeah. And again, I feel quite relaxed about that. Um, <laughs> you know, the some, some of these kids are going to have to get experience via the Europa League. And the, we saw it a couple of seasons ago, didn't we? There were a lot of... Balogun was... You know, his exposure to the first team came through the Europa League. Um, well, and of course, early on, Bukayo Saka before him sure. and and uh, Eddie Nketiah to some degree. And, and Smith Rowe. Um, and, and players like Joe Willock, who we then uh, flogged on, of course. Yeah, so I just... Yeah, we are where we are. I mean, if Sam, if Sam B gets... But he doesn't even have to get injured, does he? He only has to retaliate to a bad tackle on Sunday, and we're, um, yes. or, you know, be uh, excessively punished for a mistimed tackle himself. So it does. All really eyes on feel, Scott McTominay. <laughs> well, quite. Um, we are really walking a tightrope, but it is hopefully only a tightrope for a week or two, and then things will get better. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's clearly the most challenging fixtures we've got coming up are, you know, the weekend at Old Trafford, despite Manchester United's, uh, shall we say, unconvincing performance levels. Uh, then obviously we've got away to Brentford not too long after that, which is yeah. a tricky fixture. And then it's really the, the Northland derby at the, at the start of October, which is the next scary game, I guess. Yeah, yeah um, and I think the other thing is... Um... 
I don't know if it can work, but it is an option given that Saliba has come into to the defence and made a position his own already. And we've got Tomiyasu, who's gradually getting more and more minutes in the uh, first team. Maybe Ben White could uh, do a job for us as a as a six. Um, I mean, he wasn't great doing that on occasions for Leeds in the Championship. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying... So I don't think as a, uh, as a Premier League option, but in the Europa League, maybe we could yeah. get away with it. And also Zinchenko sometimes plays in there for yeah. Ukrainian national team. So, I mean, we do have some options. I mean, none of them are particularly edifying. And, of course, the, you, what you want to try and do is disrupt the rest, of the, t- the rest of the team as little as possible. But ultimately, you know, the main criticisms, I guess, you can lay is the fact that Party is known to be not the most durable at Premier League level. So is there enough there? But, you know, even a squad like Man City, if they lose two players in that position, they're in trouble in terms of that single position. I mean, obviously, they have amazing players. And we've already seen this season how Liverpool's midfield, um, you know, they've had a few injuries in midfield, uh, one or two on top of the those who are perennially injured, perennially injured. And Bournemouth, destruction aside, they ha- their midfield has looked deeply unconvincing so far this season. And, uh, you know, to the point that they're taking Arta Mello that no one want, else wanted on loan. You know, Chelsea have had issues in there this season. It's it's hard to get good players for that position. Um, and I guess if you haven't been trying to do it for a period of time, you know, it is something I'm sure the club recognises as a squad need, but they probably were prioritising other... You know, there was talk they were trying to get a Delino from Palmeiras deal over the line in January, and that was something they were already sort of in discussions about, tried to move forward, but understandably, given that they're in the, I think, the semi-finals of the Copa Libertadores, they don't want to sell like their key midfielder <laughs> towards the end of their season with a fight with a with the possible final on the horizon. Um, it is what it is. We have to just see how it plays it plays out and keep our fingers crossed that there's no more. Banjaxing in that arena, uh, or particularly, uh, particularly in that one specific position. I mean, looking elsewhere at the deadline day, I guess we do have to talk about Chelsea's last-minute signing. Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, is there much to say? Really, it's obviously disappointing for us as Arsenal fans that Aubameyang's rocked up there. Um, ah, fuck him to me. To, to be honest, I mean. I I didn't necessarily want to get into the conversation with you when we talked about it a few weeks ago because I was still feeling quite rough. But when you said, oh, I don't think all bad me and came out of all of nothing looking too bad, I, I actually didn't think that was right. I thought, what a tosser. Um, <laughs> and he's... Um, he's proved it, really, for signing for the fucking scummiest club in London. Um, you know... Um, yeah, sympathies to him for what he and his family have just been through in uh, Barcelona. That's awful. But as, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, he's a Chelsea player now. He's the enemy. Um, although I should say that Chelsea Ray is really unhappy about the signing, which is quite funny to me. Um, he said, Ray, he said, uh, it was like that, the bad dreams I was having when I was in hospital. Um only this is real life. <laughs> well, I mean, ultimately, it makes perfect sense why Chelsea have done it in that 
they literally don't have a striker having binned off 150 million quids worth of strikers for not very much in the summer, which I don't think anyone could have foreseen. I mean, there's a lot of people have been very critical of, you know, oh, Eddie said you couldn't get any money for him, but now we look like mugs because Barcelona have got money for him. But ultimately, two different times, you know, he went to Barcelona, he found some form, but also the summer market is very different to the January market. And more crucially, no one would have foreseen, uh, well, both Barcelona somehow managing to reconfigure all their debt to get pick up Lewandowski. Uh, uh, and also, equally, no one would have seen Chelsea, as I say, binning off Lukaku and uh, Werner without buying another striker for a period of three months and suddenly having themselves to do do a, a weird deal in the summer. But it makes sense for them because they've just got no one that can play there. And uh, Aubameyang is one of like three strikers that Tuchel's ever been able to get a tune out of. Um, but it does lead to a kind of weird collection of front players. Um, and, you know, we've seen the Bamiyang, we've seen the best and the worst of Bamiyang arse, and we've seen, you know, what he can do when he's when he's on form. We've also seen how little he contributes to broader play. And we've also seen what indeed people saw at, uh, at his previous clubs and at Barcelona, that when he's fully motivated and when a team's set up in a way that works for him, he can be incredibly effective but when that doesn't happen, he can sort of lose a bit of interest, lose a bit of belief. Um, not very good at hiding his feelings when things aren't great, which I suppose matters less when you're not the captain. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how it pans out. I mean, Chelsea to date haven't been particularly frightening. Uh, obviously, they've spent all the money. <laughs> um, I think they, what, they've spent over £250 million this summer, if I remember rightly, which is uh, not not an insignificant amount of dosh, um, not least with Fafana, uh, obviously going there for a big, big sum of money, which Leicester then couldn't reinvest very effectively. Um, so he gets to face Martinelli again, which I'm sure he's desperately pleased about. <laughs> and they've got Zakaria off loan of Juventus in midfield, loan with an option, I think might even be an obligation to buy and, and or an option to buy, which is about four times what, Juventus paid for him six months ago. <laughs> so it seems like there's real strategic thinking going on down there. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out for them because so far they look a bit identity-less for the first time in a long time, Chelsea. Uh, and I don't know about you, but apart from about half the game against Spurs, I don't think I've seen them play well this season, even when they've got results. And um, so... If we can stay fit, we're better than them, though, but we'll see how that pans out. And then, of course, Man United's equally schizophrenic approach continues with having gone back to Ajax again to spend £82 million on a winger whose, I think, best ever goal-scoring season was eight or nine goals for Ajax and Eredivisie. Yeah, uh, well, may maybe we should um, not say too much about... <laughs> <laughs> that right now today because we might end up looking a bit silly come Sunday night well I was about to say very talented player quick good dribbler good finisher but I mean no matter how you dress it up that's a big risk I mean it's 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 the kind of money you'd expect to spend on a really proven player um, and no one could really honestly say that he is that you know mm. I mean um, I mean, they've spent what 140 million on two players from Ajax. 
I mean, yeah. I must be sick as dogs that they let a couple of other players leave, you know, more highly rated players leave more cheaply earlier in the transfer window because uh, they could have fleeced United for everything. But um, I mean, I, I suspect he'll, I suspect he'll do well for United because they just got their big problem has been no one to play on the right wing, despite buying wingers every summer. Um, and that is his position. And, 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 you know, he does have a, a lot of ability, but equally, he's going to have to learn, as uh, happens quite a lot, that some of the stuff that flies in Eredivisie ain't going to work in the Premier League. You know, he's got, a, you know, even unveiled him to doing his, you know, 360 degree ball control trick. And I was just thinking, yeah, try that in the League Cup at the Britannia Stadium and see how that works for you. On a Wednesday night, you'll find yourself booted into the stands. Well, it'll be interesting to see how he copes if he does start against um, Kieran Tierney, who I thought had um, a much more encouraging game on Wednesday night. Yeah, I mean, against Fulham, Tierney looked a bit lost and a bit lacking in sharpness, frankly, but against me, yeah. he looked much more comfortable. Um, I guess other notable uh, uh, events of transfer deadline day was the return of Willian, fresh from death threats in uh, death threats of plenty in Brazil, has, has turned up in uh, West London again. <laughs> uh, well, he, he has probably gone to the only football club in London where he won't get death threats if he plays badly. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> But also, uh, but I think, yeah. it, you know, it makes sense because, you know, what was William's one greatest superpower apart from free kick taking? I don't know. Did he have- spamming spamming cross- crosses from the right wing, which doesn't work very well when you're at Arsenal and there's no one who can win a header. <laughs> yeah, but I just think he's got to be able to get into position to deliver those crosses. And the evidence of his time at Arsenal suggested to me that he can't really run anymore. Um Luke, who um, I mentioned frequently, Fulham yeah. Association through the family, he is absolutely gobsmacked. Um, but then I think he was gobsmacked when we signed him. And of course, that was uh, t- too long years ago now. I, I think it's a bizarre one from Fulham because actually looking at Fulham last week, um, I thought they played really well. They were quite well organised. They defended well. They didn't look to me like they needed a right winger that can't really cut it in the Premier League anymore. Well, it, I mean, I, m- I'm presuming he's going to be there as more of someone you bring off the bench, chasing a game kind of scenario, because literally the one thing he can still do, if he can get in the position, is consistently <laughs> cross the ball from the right wing to the back Ch- post. Chase, chasing a game. <laughs> yeah. He well, can chase a tortoise. No, but, you know, there are going to be games where Fulham are trailing and, the, and who, they're playing against someone who's going to be sitting a little bit deeper and he's going to be, you know, de- defending uh, the, their box. And they have in Mitrovic as good a striker in the air as anyone else in this division, By you know, and probably probably the best in terms of heading ability and power in the air. Mm. And Willian's one thing that you can still do relevantly is bang the ball onto a striker's bonce from the right wing if you can give him the ball in space. And so, you know, presumably that's what they're thinking um, because they don't, they've, they've you know, strengthened a bit, but they don't have a plethora of wide players. Uh, I, I would be surprised if he's a regular for them, but I'm, I reckon he'll see time off the bench if they're, if they're pushing late on or, you know, be there to add some numbers in League Cup or FA Cup or all that sort of thing. Um, I mean, we you know, they also bought or got on loan Kazawa from PSG as a left back, which I think 
Makes sense. He was a de- he's a decent player. Uh, one of those ones that was linked with us but deemed not good enough, which I think was the right call. But of course, no one can uh, can quite compete with two great themes of the transfer window, which is one, Southampton buy- buying youth players from Man City, uh, having bought uh, Semenadozi and Juan Larios from Man City yesterday on top of uh, the two uh, players have gone straight from Man City reserve and youth teams into their first team this season. So Man City have made about 40 million, 45 million from Southampton alone this transfer window. Um, uh, and of course, the other great theme is Nottingham Forest buying everyone. I mean, they've literally bought or loaned in over 20 players in this transfer window, which is. I mean, we knew they came in with a very small squad because of all the loans last season, but that is genuinely extraordinary. And what's even more extraordinary is that they managed to yesterday bring in a, a guy, Josh Bowler, who I think had started at Everton, who'd done really well at Blackpool for four million and immediately loaned him to Olympiacos. Which is like, what? what? <laughs> Why have you done this? I do not understand this. There must be a thought in there somewhere. Uh, maybe it's something to do with their ownership, but... Um, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Other transfers I think are worth kind of keeping an eye on is Billy Gilmore's gone from Chelsea to Brighton for seven and a half million. The kind of player that was never going to fit Chelsea system very well, but might fit Brighton's very well. So I suspect he'll do very well there before being sold to someone for a huge fee in the not too distant future. Fulham also getting Dan James on loan from Leeds, which is just a bit random given that he was starting every game for for Leeds this season and then suddenly goes to Fulham on loan. I don't know what the deal was there. Uh, also, Fulham got yesterday Carlos Vinicius on loan from Benfica. He had briefly spent time uh, on the other side of North London, uh, deputising for Harry Kane. Uh, so, I mean, all those, it's quite interesting. And um, and Idrissa Gay trying to recapture past glories at Everton on loan. Oh, no, undisclosed fee, sorry, from, from PSG. Uh, so, like, there's a few nice storylines there, and we'll have to see how those impact over the season. Um, moving away from transfers, uh, how did you oh, enjoy right. the, the victory over Villa? God, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved it. I um, he loved it when, Gabri- when Gabriel Martinelli put us back in front after we'd had our two minutes of uh, pain. I ran around the flat screaming my head off, and then at the final whistle, I ran out of ran out of the flat ran downstairs onto Beckenham High Street and I was so, so happy that we'd won a game at home against Aston Villa that I ran a mile round the block. It's literally a mile round the block and I just ran. I didn't do all of that. <laughs> but if I had have done, um, who could have who could have criticised me, uh, right? Well, I mean, any, whatever motivates one for a fitness regime is not to be criticised. Oh, I, I would do it. I just like my chest will explode at the moment. But yeah, I thought um, I thought that forty five first forty five minutes particularly was um, excellent. Probably the best. Uh, someone's going to correct me, and that's fine. Please feel free to tweet me at Rock the Casbah seven seven. Um, for me, that was the most exciting 45 minutes I've seen from a Mikel Arteta side. And I'm not saying that as a criticism, by the way. Um, I thought the way we attacked, I thought Bukayo Saka was absolutely superb. I thought the way we won the ball back, um, you know, I've spent 
probably five years on this podcast moaning about Granite Xhaka. I thought he was exceptional yeah. on um, Wednesday night. And it's a real tragedy to me that still, uh, even after, uh, you know, a really improved season last year and the performances he's been putting in uh, since the start of the season, there are still so many Arsenal fans that are like, yeah, but wait till he fucks up. It's, can we not just give him credit where it's due? I mean, whether you like him or not, he's here to stay, at least for the foreseeable. Let's get behind him. Um, well, I do think the atmosphere in the ground has been on... more supportive towards and, him. I will definitely and say And that's that. exactly what I was about to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that's fine. You continue. That's that's absolutely Sorry, fine. I didn't mean to piss on your chips. So. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I, I just, just think it's so exciting that the Arsenal um, has become an exciting place to watch football uh, you know the fan I've actually written a, a post about this for Daily Canon which may or may not be available by the time the pod goes out just um, referencing well I guess the just the genesis of it was Richard Key's comments after the Fulham game <laughs> but actually I really just want really wanted to focus on Mikel Arteta and how he, I, th- I talked about this on the pod last week or maybe the week before, he spoke in his very first press conference about reconnecting the, uh, mm-hmm. the team to the fans and how powerful that would be when it happened. And not only has he done it, we're seeing the truth of what he's, uh, of that. And it's so exciting. And I think the mood around the club, I was thinking, um, James Craddock, my friend James, got tickets for us to go to the Nottingham Forest game in um, the at the end of October. It's an absolute nightmare, even as silver members now, to get tickets for Arsenal. Yeah. Um, and about three years ago, they were phoning you up going, please have a season ticket. Well, I know exactly. you have 17,000 on the list. Exactly. It's, <laughs> he, he said, I mean, James has been a silver member, I think, almost for if not for the entire time we've been at the Emirates for most of that time. And he he has said it, it's never been so difficult to get tickets. Even when we moved there and we still had a pretty good team in 2006. Yeah. Um, and it just it shows you uh, Arsenal is a place people want to go and watch football at the moment. And um, every home game, you can see exactly why. Well, yeah, I mean, OK, well, we have to acknowledge the opposition we've faced has not been the strongest. You know, Palace away aside, the other four games we've played are games that we would expect to win regardless of the season. You know, we've had three home games against lesser opposition and an away game against a newly promoted Bournemouth who spent no money, who promptly got, bug- you know, <laughs> absolutely stuffed 9-0 the next week at Anfield. But um, the out of those three home games, we uh, have averaged... 21 shots on goal or not on target but 21 shots and he across you know that's our average for each of those three games and that's you know that's pretty great figures and it's bizarre really that we've had a two goal victory a one goal victory and a one goal victory at home in games where basically we've been let down by our finishing and despite the fact we've scored some really nice goals with some well-taken finishes they're games that we should have scored more i mean certainly the uh, fulham and villa you know our xg significantly outstripped our goal scoring exploits and in both of those games should have been out of sight by half time 
Um, I mean, I suppose that's something you could indicate as a concern, really. But ultimately, when the performance levels are so are so dominant in those games, I mean, against Fulham, we had what seventy something percent possession, even by the end of the game. But we were, you know, not that was even after game state was affected by us taking our foot off the gas. Against Villa, the possession wasn't so great. But if you look at things like territory, and you know, Villa had four shots in the match, and I think the corner may have been one of two on target in the entire game. And of course, that was a goal that should not have stood if VIR was capable of looking at more than one camera angle. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I just, I, yeah, you're right. You're right to say that we haven't played against uh, the most difficult of opposition. But I, I think on the flip side of that, nobody was making allowances for us when we had zero points after three games last season, having had to go to Brentford with, you know, missing our, our strikers. And then we played Chelsea and Manchester City with, um, you know, I think we had half our first team out missing yeah, for yeah, COVID, yeah. certainly yeah. for one of those games. Well, Kalasnach um, was playing centre-half. Oh, well, yeah, yes. Um, so, OK, yeah, we've had a, a slightly kind start to the season for the first time in forever, but we still have to go and win those games. And, you know, we've already seen um, uh, other games that it isn't, you know, Liverpool drew with Fulham. Um, yeah. So it's it's not quite as simple as Richard Key saying, it's Fulham, so disparagingly. I think a Fulham eighth or something. Is it? Yeah, they're playing decent. I, I mean, I was actually, even though we totally dominated them, I was quite impressed when they when they played at our gaff, just because I thought, okay, we're we're all over them, but there's a real clarity about what they're trying to do, and they're playing to their strengths in a way that they didn't do the last time they were up. And so, even though we were totally dominating them and should have scored more, they, you know, they didn't look like folding at any point their their morale seemed very good they seemed to be quite tactically tight they you were trying to trying to get them all the positions where they could really play off Mitrovic you know they were struggling with that and that's no great surprise but yeah then they're, they're no mugs unlike a certain hairy-handed pundit who's been banished to the Middle East for being <laughs> a misogynist dinosaur and of course Richard Keyes found some uh, support from Simon Jordan and uh, that bastion of modern thinking Graham Souness who uh, can't decide whether he's uh, a supporter of uh, causes of quality or or a dinosaur that doesn't believe in equality and flits between the two depending on the subject matter but um yeah I mean the whole thing's ridiculous and I do like the fact that Arsenal fans have decided to uh totally ridicule the celebration police to the point where someone was semi-ironically sitting on fireworks uh, after the Villa game in celebration and uh you know Ramsdale came out and said his little piece about we're going to celebrate how we want and of course lots of uh, Richard Keyes must have got about 20,000 Twitter mentions after Liverpool went mental with their last minute winner against Newcastle uh, and uh, and uh, the hairy-handed one was surprisingly silent on that subject yeah, and I think he tried to sort of caveat it and say that he didn't have a problem with Arsenal fans celebrating. His issue was more with Mikel Arteta, but that appears to be because he just generally has issues with Mikel Arteta. Um, but I just think, it's, and I've said this in the piece that I've written, I think he's just completely missing the point. The celebrations aren't for Richard Keyes and Andy Gray, they're for us. They're for the Arsenal fans, they're for the players. I mean, we saw on Wednesday night... Um, 
when Arteta was walking arm in arm with um I forget which Gabriel it was. One of the Gabriels. I think <laughs> it was uh, the one at the back. Yeah. Um, yes. But, you know, he's really, as we said on the pod a few few weeks ago, like now he's cleared the um, the rubbish out of the dressing room. He's really built bonds with his players and they feel like his players, even if Martinelli, for example, was brought to this club by another manager. You can see that Arteta loves him. Mm, mm, mm. Um, quite right too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just so yeah. I mean, Richard Keys can think what he wants. He can say what he wants. And as I've said on this podcast before, if people are going to get irritated by us celebrating, I don't care about that because it means we're celebrating, <laughs> and yeah, I'll quite. be happy to annoy Richard Keys every week of the season although i suspect that on on i'm not so confident we will be doing it on sunday evening i hope so of course but um i mean i I have to sorry i have to admit i called keys out on 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 social media but not because of that but more the fact that when he had uh nigel de jong on that him and gray had nigel de jong on who was clearly not entirely supportive of their curmudgeonly position uh, he's just kept shutting him down yeah, and talking yeah, over yeah, him yeah, I saw that. and wouldn't let him speak. And it's like, literally, like you're, yeah, okay, you're a presenter, you're an experienced presenter, but basically in the world of sport, you've done nothing. And you've got a guy on here who's your guest who you've invited on, who is a multiple trophy winning player, who's won titles in England, who's played in a World Cup final, and yes, famously, karate kicked someone in it without getting sent off. But... You know, Feels. his opinion, unfortunately, Richard, is of more import than yours. And it's yeah. and he just wouldn't let him talk. I know, it's terrible. It's bizarre. It's like it's like you are invalid you have jumped the shark with your role here. You think <laughs> your role as a as the host of a of a TV program is is to push your opinions at the expense of the people who are there as experts. Yeah. And I think as well, um, the two things that I just want to say before I forget. One is he was massively disrespectful to Fulham in saying what he said. Yeah. Um, massively disrespectful. And the second thing is actually in the heat of the moment, pe- people say silly stuff all the time. You know, you only have to listen to this podcast to know that. Um, of a, <laughs> but um you know, to double down on it. And then he wrote a blog. He wrote a blog telling the world how uh, Mikel Arteta over-celebrated. And, uh, and then he, I think he tweeted, well, I know he tweeted last night because I replied to it calling him a prick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he tweeted last night saying, oh, I feel sorry for the Arsenal fans. Nothing to celebrate on deadline day. It's like, Jesus Christ, give it a rest. Do you know how boring you sound? Well, it's a weird thing as well, also, that um, it, it sort of the clip with Andy Gray being in there, and Andy Gray was trying to sort of join in, but not fully join in. He's obviously yeah, kind of yeah. like, you're my mate, and I sort of agree with you in principle, but you're over-egging this one, and it's getting a bit awkward. And so he's trying to kind of join in, but not totally. And then just de Jong's just like going... You, you, I don't know why you're wasting time talking about this. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, it just, it just <laughs> fundamentally misunderstands why we're all here and why why 
people manage football teams and why footballers play football and why we go and watch. And if you can't celebrate when you've absolutely bossed the game, conceded a ridiculous goal, and I think Gunnar Blog was right. I listened to the Arscast Extra um, earlier in the week where he said, Gabriel, I mean, you know, we can look at it technically and say Gabriel's first touch took him back towards the goal when he should have gone out towards the touchline. But Mitrovic, like, to tackle him in that way and come away with the ball... That isn't going to happen every time that situation unfolds. It was no, a maximum punishment for a, a couple of seconds of sloppiness. Um, but we bossed that game. And then to find ourselves 1-0 down against the run of play, yes, okay, we got lucky with the deflection, but we equalised almost immediately. And, you know, a common theme this season, as soon as we have a setback, we're up the other end and making it right, as we did on Wednesday night. And I look at this as an Arsenal fan who, you know, I've talked loads about the character of this team um, and the quality of it, I suppose. But every time we've been, we've had a setback this season, we've responded. And that's exactly what we want to see. And to, for Gabriel then to make it right, in the last five minutes of the game to keep our 100% run going. It's the only one left in the division, by the way, to keep us obviously top of the league. Yeah, so what if it's only four games into the season? We're not going to be up there all season. We know that. I mean, there's a goal-scoring Terminator in Manchester (laughs) that is guaranteeing we're not going to be top of the league probably for much longer. I I don't know how, how long this can continue. But why can't we enjoy it while it lasts? That's what we're here for. Well, it seems to be the view seems to be that because this club once had the best team in the country 20 years ago, that unless you're the best team in the country, you're not allowed to be happy about anything. Um, And as you say, it's such an irrelevance, really, because it's more about a a communion, communal celebration between everyone and part of the presence of the same moment. And it is a full illustration of relationship between fans and players that they want to share that with each other. And, and, and that's sort of going back to quite base, you know, basic human instincts as well. Um, But just more broadly, um, yeah, Fulham are no mugs, like you're saying, and it is an insult to them. I mean, you know, Fulham have already taken points off Liverpool, and they'll take points off other good teams. You know, they beat Brentford uh, just after Brentford, or, or was it just before, but Gubbins and after, United. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and um, you know, they know what they're about, you know, quite how their legs will hold up as the season goes on. But, you know, as, as to the goal in question, you know, normally in that situation, Gabriel does what he does and just bodies the opposition striker, blocks away with it and comes away with the ball. But Mitrovic is a beast. You know, he is one of the strongest centre-forwards you've seen in this division for a very long time. And that, you know, he's going to surprise a few people who haven't played against him before in that way. I mean, I can't fucking wait until they start pinging crosses onto his enemies playing against Lissandro Martinez. Because <laughs> uh, Martinez is a, is a much better player than a lot of pundits were suggesting and was one that, I, you know, not as a centre-half, but one I would not have been unhappy with us buying. But he's not built to play against the likes of Mitrovic. It's as simple as that. Um, if Fulham can get decent decent territory from from which to to try and exploit that, um, go ahead. I don't know. I was just going to ask. Um, did you see the um, 
the uh, Arsenal tweet after the game on Saturday, um, which they were going around the uh, crowds who were doing the Saliba chart, not in not entirely successfully, but yeah. it was going. Yeah. And then it just cuts as it gets to Saliba, and it's Eddie and Ketty yeah, going yeah, down yeah. the tunnel going Saliba. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and and the fact that you're hearing that apparently, you know, like last season, that the terrace songs are making it into the dressing room, you know. And that's not something we're aware of having happened really before, but this club is very much embracing sharing that. And again, it's a very conscious effort to try and build that connection. You know, you are with us and we are with you. And and, and that's also magnified by the fact that it's a young, hungry team, most mostly made up of people who haven't had a huge amount of success elsewhere. Arsenal is either the biggest or one of the biggest clubs that they've ever played for. You know, these aren't people arriving, walking in the door, counting their medals, looking for a payday or, you know, hoping for something a little bit different. These are people trying to make themselves. And so, you know, the emotionality of the experience is going to be greater. And that's sometimes to our disadvantage. I mean, you know, for instance, the last few minutes against Fulham, we panicked far more than was necessary. And, uh, and against Aston Villa, there were points in that second half where the game was far more open than we needed it to be. Mm. You know, we were totally in control, but we got into slight basketball football because you could really see the players being fa- impacted by the emotionality of the crowd. But, you know, if that's the rough that comes with the smooth that aforementioned, then you take it because the players will learn how to manage that better. The crowd will also learn how to, you know, when to be able to feel offer the same support but in a more relaxed way but at the moment everyone's just enjoying that sense of something that hasn't been there for a long time and you know anyone that criticizes is as you say missing the point yeah i mean i what what do you think about this because i came away from the first as i said earlier i thought exceptional first half performance but i did kind of feel we got caught up in our own tempo a little bit and i I think there was a lot of balls not quite bouncing for us and as with the fulham game on saturday quite often a block came in from nowhere just as someone was about to pull the trigger but i just think maybe a little bit of composure in the penalty area was was the order of the day or am i being too harsh no you're you're right i mean you know, in a febrile atmosphere, it's more likely to make players, particularly less experienced players, slightly rush or slightly snatch at things or not quite, you know, but also these young players, so they're more inclined to do that anyway. And, you know, yeah. but, and, and crucially, in both games, you've had moments of quality where someone has found calm in a moment of chaos, whether it be Saka's cross for Martinelli for the winner against Villa or... Erdegaard's into play, you know, for his goal against Fulham, you know, and and so these players are, are you know, trying to do that. Uh, and that will come again more with experience and with confidence at the moment. They're just going all out. Uh, and, yeah. and that isn't sustainable, of course, you know, both in terms of fitness, but also in terms of just being able to achieve the same results. But I mean, hell, it's a shitload better than what we've seen at the start of other recent seasons where they've been desperately trying to crank the gears to get up to operational level at this point of the season. Uh, you know, I mean, you've got to remember that last season, yes, we won our fourth game of the season, but that was like a a narrow, squeaky bum, one nil win at home to Norwich. the utterly awful Norwich City, yeah. who, had, who had their worst season in top flight in quite some time. Um, so we have to take the positives from it. I mean... 
Were there any other observations, just reflecting back on the two games in the week that was that you that particularly stood out for you? I mean, you've obviously mentioned the performances of Jacques being a very high level. We've talked about um, about the the pace and the tempo. Um, yeah, I think um, I found Martinelli quite interesting on Wednesday night. I I got a little <laughs> sounds mad to say it, given that um, well, Emmy Martinez. I, I mean, it's a save. I mean, the save just before half time that stopped Gabriel yeah. Martinelli what would, would have been the goal of the season if that had yeah, gone in. Yeah, I'm yeah, convinced yeah. of it. Fantastic save. <laughs> and yet he, um, I mean, I think the uh, fumbling the ball uh, for Gabriel Jesus, uh, he's a little bit unlucky that it falls to Gabriel Jesus, I suppose. Um, well, also, it was a deflected goal, shot, which slightly wrong. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, I, they, they were quite harsh on him in on comms and in the studio, I thought, and I'm, I'm not sure that was quite fair, but um, the goalkeeping for the, the winning goal was, wasn't great. But on Martin, and I did like um, the uh, ground-wide chart of um, Aaron Ramsdale, he's better than you. I found found myself getting. I've gone from being a big Emmy Martinez fan to um, looking at him and just hating the sight of his face. <laughs> <laughs> um, how he got away with the um, headlock on uh, Gabriel Jesus and then pretended he was injured himself. I'm not quite sure what was going on on the VAR on Wednesday night because we should have had a penalty as well. I mean. Bit of a theme that so far this season. Like, like, it, it would have been soft. It was a fucking penalty. There is no way that. Well, what was Bakaya Saka supposed to do when Tyron Mings is holding him? It's a penalty. I mean, did you laugh when that decision went against us, or were you cross? Uh, I was momentarily cross, but I, I wasn't surprised because it's a sort of thing which. Uh, Shall we say it's it's a very Brexit style of refereeing, uh, where you know we're men are men, and it's you've got to be strong, and like it's that what people are able to play that duality of saying, well, you know, if he was stronger, it wouldn't have happened. You've got to be stronger there. You've got to be stronger there, even though yeah. what someone's doing is like against the rules. And if you were stronger, it wouldn't have happened. You know, uh, and we keep on hearing this kind of stuff. But it's also, I mean, you know. Uh, for, for parts of the, you know, I was very complimentary about a, a referee that I haven't the, the kindest thoughts about in general in the opening game of the season against Crystal Palace. But this ref last night, I've not seen him before, not last night, um, against Villa, um, Robert Jones. I've not seen him before. And he looks like a ref who's just been promoted, who's not quite there yet. He looked like he, like he had a certain authority, which which is obviously a good thing because there's a couple of them out there that don't have an authority and that has its own problems. And he he sort of there were certain types of decision he was very good at making, but he had no control over the game and bottled the big decisions essentially. Anytime there was a big decision, he just abdicated responsibility. Yeah. Um, uh, in, and, and, you know, of course, lots of fans bang on about bias in that situation. And it's, you know, because obviously the decisions that he didn't make were decisions that should have been in our favour. But he abdicated responsibility. And as we've seen, the, that's one of the problems with VAR is that only the most senior VAR people feel comfortable overriding or, you know, pulling up the guy on the pitch 
Well, I don't know if you heard this at the time or even saw my tweet about it subsequently. Even Peter Walton said that he should have been asked to go to the monitor to look at that foul on Saka. Yeah. Um, and, of course, if you're asking someone to go to the monitor, it's going to be a, a, a penalty. Um, I, yeah, ridiculous. I thought Villa actually really exploited that to the max. And we saw when we played them last season at their place, they're, they've become quite a nasty football team under Steven Gerrard. Um, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, McGinn... treading the line. Yeah. Well, we saw McGinn clatter Odegaard, and we don't know if he's going to be fit for Old Trafford. And that was because they'd been allowed to tread that line with a degree of impunity. I mean, this is the thing is people always think that the only alternative, you know, the ref either has to book people or let them go. What happened to what used to be the commonest sight on the football pitch until fairly recently, which is the referee having a quiet word? Because mm. we see that far less rarely than we used to. And it's something which, you know, it's one of those things that if you do it, one, it can take the temperature out of things. Two, it can act as a form of discipline without going to a card. Three, it sort of gives some placation to a sense of injustice from the other team or the other team's fans. You know, it, it's it's a, a great way of managing the game if you're not sure if someone should be carded or if you want to err on the side of caution. You know, I think that some referees in the past perhaps were guilty of doing that too often. You know, Stoke used to get spoken to a great deal without anyone <laughs> pulling out a card. And we've yeah. seen the same with Burnley until they got relegated. But ultimately... It is still part of your uh, options as a referee. And he just chose not to do that with Villa last night at the time where the game was raising in temperature and they were being quite reckless in a number of their challenges and just being on the borderline physically. And all you do <laughs> have to do is just like, you know, even if you're not sure if the fouls, when you give a foul, just kind of say, look, just calm down, lads. Maybe call the captain yeah, over yeah, yeah. and just saying, this is just getting a bit heated. Just I chill out. And it, it, you know, you might it might not change anything, but it gives you a chance to influence proceedings without having to go to cards, and yeah. it, it gives you one step before you have to start carding people, which we obviously I, didn't see that game last season when Jacka got booked for repeated fouling in his first tackle of the game. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and it, it did get to a point. I feel like every time Aston Villa made a change, I was like, "Oh, Stephen Gerrard substituting him before he can be sent off," <laughs> um, but. I was starting to say something about Gabriel Martinelli, and then I massively di digressed. Well, here's um, your chance. Okay, so Gabriel Martinelli, I thought, obviously had um, a really excellent game on uh, Wednesday night. Uh, I can't really remember whether he did or not on Saturday. I feel like he did, but I can't remember now. Such a long time ago. Um <laughs> But I've, I found myself a little frustrated with his decision-making, a little bit. I th um, there was a moment in the second half where he managed to get himself to the byline, um, effectively about four yards from the near post, and he had a cutback to Gabriel Jesus, and he took another touch and he got tackled. Um, and then there was a moment quite late on in the game where he could have slipped in Smith Rowe, who, before I forget to mention, I thought he looked really good when he came on. And I'm hoping. Yeah, him and Eddie were both great the, off the uh, bench. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's just, he could have played Smith Rowe in and he had a shot. And I just. I 
the Smith Rose is a good finisher. I mean, there's a lot of things that Emil's pretty good at, and finishing chances, it happens to be one of them. And I think if he plays him in, we probably score and have a much easier final few minutes of the game. But it would be harsh to criticise <laughs> the guy overly. Um, so I'm not doing that. I'm just hoping to see some slightly better decision-making. And I, I'm going to be a massive hypocrite now and immediately undercut myself and say that when Eddie and Ketia, who um, did some really great hold-up play in the mm. last few mm. minutes of that game, managed to uh, fashion himself into a shooting position, albeit I think probably about 25 yards out, was he? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he smashed, ended up smashing the ball just... Um, high and wide of the uh, going into the lower tier of the North Bank. I kind of didn't mind that he did that. I thought he'd earned the right to have a shot. And if he'd scored, it would have been an absolute worldy. Someone uh, I mean, said that's not how you should judge that. Yeah, I mean, I think for, we're going just to Eddie's thing. I think he chose the wrong option because he did have runners either side and 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 he chose a lower percentage option, but it's highly surprising for a young striker who's desperate for minutes coming off the bench, who's managed to, you know, play really well and get a chance to shoot, to take a shot there. You know, it's one of those ones where he, he made the wrong choice, but you don't want your strikers to to always shy away from taking the shot in that position. So it's, yeah, I find it a, a, a an error, but a forgivable error, particularly for a player yeah. in his position in the squad. But, you know, I feel the same way about Martinelli in that he's playing so well at the moment. I mean, even if you want statistical backup for that, you know, Scott Willis, uh, oh, that crab who does a lot of stuff for the Arsenal Vision podcast, he's just got up some stat wheels for it. And Martinelli, the last two or three games, has been like, wow. Um, uh, but also, you know, when you're playing at the pace he is and with the intensity he is, you know, as Arteta sort of said before, uh, you've still got to learn how to play at different tempos, slow things down a bit, you know, essentially. And Martinelli and Martinelli has improved in that area, yeah. but still naturally, his natural instinct is to go pedal to the metal. Uh, and that doesn't always facilitate the calmest decision-making. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's partly an experience thing and it's partly... His, a personality thing and it's partly a pace he plays that thing and as we've seen with every other facet of his, of his game it will get better <laughs> in the same way against Fulham you know he took a succession of shite corners and then happily managed to stick <laughs> one in the absolute perfect place when we needed him to oh do you know that was so funny because I was like I really, 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 really wanted us to take him off and put Smith Rowe on and um <laughs> thank god thank god Mikel Arteta isn't me and he left him on to get that one corner in that gave Burnt Leno a problem I thought um, actually of the two goalkeepers uh, the two ex-Arsenal goalkeepers we've seen this week um, as I mentioned earlier I've just developed a monumental antipathy towards Emi Martinez I can't imagine why that might be um I don't know if he's given any interviews recently saying how hard done by he was at Arsenal. No, he's finally but, shut um, up about that. Yeah, I, I thought, yeah, uh, it was quite nice to see Burnt there, no? and it was um, really nice of him not to come and get that corner at the end. Yeah, well, he'd played quite well up to that point, hadn't he? He'd, been, he'd given a quiet authority and had been quite good on crosses. But He made also, a great, great save from Murdergaard as well. Yeah, but ultimately, you know, one of the reasons why he's no longer at the club 
which seems ironic given Ramsdale's experience in the next game. But one of the Indeed. reasons Leno's not at that, not at the club anymore, is because that was a weakness in his game. Um, yeah, I mean, what what can you say? Uh, happily, both of our ex goalkeepers, despite playing quite well, didn't perform at their optimum at key moments for us. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, you you were talking earlier about how people perceive things to be lucky, and of course neither of those victories are lucky because we totally dominated the matches, and the games should have been out of sight long before we got our first goals, let alone our second goals in both those games. And it, you know, it, the order in which the goals comes does not necessarily define the likelihood of which the goals are to be scored. Um, but of course, the best re- reminder of what it can be like uh, if you're unlucky in that way is you remember when United came to the Emirates, what, four years ago or something like that, or five years ago, maybe now, and uh, De Gea made like 23 saves or something like that. And uh, and United managed to score three goals off two shots on target. <laughs> so at least at least we uh, haven't had that to contend with so far and hopefully won't have that to contend with at the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Um... I actually missed that game. I was uh, I was watching snooker in York, so um, I didn't have the pleasure. But it must have been quite a frustrating one. Hopefully, we don't get one of those on Sunday. Well, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, what do you th- make of Manchester United's resurgence from their last three games? I'm really cross with Liverpool because I feel like L- Liverpool should have beaten Manchester United, and they didn't. And Rather than Man United having no points from three games, they they would they've got something to build on now, um, and they beat Liverpool. So <laughs> you'd think if they beat Liverpool at home, they might not be too worried about us turning up. I think, I guess, I just always feel with United, and I think I'm right in saying this: they usually turn up against us. Yeah. So um, that's something I. I we can't rely on going there in United not being uh, having their heads in the game because they will be, and we need to have our, our heads in the game. What I will say is that I think, based on what I've seen from Arsenal this season, if we play like we have been, I do think we will win. Um, but it's being able to play, um, and that'll be interesting to see, given um, uh, it sounds unlikely that Zinchenko is going to be back for the game. Um, and obviously, we're already mi- missing part. And Rams, that I mean, Jesus Christ, talk about baptism of fire for Matt <laughs> Turner. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, it's not a game I'm looking forward to, but I, I, I genuinely believe that this Arsenal team playing playing as they are, I think Gabriel Jesus is going to be something very different for um, Manchester United centre-backs to deal with. Um and he's actually someone we've not really talked about um, today, which is crazy because he has uh, been so transformational, I think, for the attack. Um, yeah, well, I think we've talked about him every other week so far this season and we'll probably talk about him. <laughs> we can have a week off. The the yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this United team, it's going to be a difficult game because, as you say, they will be up for it uh, like crazy and they found a little bit of confidence but equally, they are—they've basically become a slightly more defensively solid, slightly less attackingly interesting version of what Solskjaer had them as over the last three weeks, which is basically a counter-attacking team with a a midfield that 
doesn't really make sense, but has some good players in there. Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately, they've spent a lot of money this summer and, um, you know, on the back of spending a lot of money every summer. Um, and they have the quality of the players to hurt us for sure. But I don't think I've seen them play well, like genuinely play well since about February. Um, so it's kind of a hard one to pick because you know that there is inherent danger there and you know they'll be up for it. You know the crowd will be hostile. But at the same time, you know that if we start well, you know, we we could easily do them some serious damage. And I, and, uh, I can't imagine Diego Dallo will have quite an as easy a time against Gabriel Martinelli as he had has had in the last couple of fixtures. And, um, you know, the, the same goes for certain other players in their team. I think actually perhaps, although it's going to be less good for our central midfield, I think Zinchenko being out might not be the worst thing for this game because Tierney is he's not obviously not technically the same player, but he's defensively better yeah. and he's quicker. And we know that United are going to play on the on the counter with pace. That's basically what they've been doing, which is hence the, the reason that Cristiano Ronaldo... Uh, you know, one of the best players of all time, TM, uh, can't get near their starting eleven because basically they've realised they just if they get lots of people who run around and try out, it's amazing how they've started picking up better results. Now they've stopped running less than every other team in the division. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite um, funny. My mate uh, Wayne in Leeds, who's a Liverpool fan, he said. Oh, you'll beat them, no problem. But I can't set any store in that because he's a Liverpool fan. Um... Yeah, and given that <laughs> Liverpool went there with uh, perhaps a, a slightly under par midfield, and it cost them. Uh, and and you know, I mean, the one hope is that we won't be quite as tactically suicidal as Liverpool were in that game, where they they played that game like they'd never seen any of the Manchester United players play before. Yeah. Oh, yeah, what we'll do, they've played their three quickest players up front. We'll just park on the halfway line, but not attempt to play in the same line as each other at any point. Um, yeah, I um, yeah, I just hope we turn up. And I think if we we, we, we turn up properly, we, we'll beat them because we are a better football team than them. That, that's what I believe. I- I mean, of course, it does also keep up the uh, the wonderful tradition we have of going to Old Trafford, never having our first eleven. Yeah, which I I I think I I I think I mean not this not now, but I think previously I, I checked it out before one of our least last two seasons at visits to Old Trafford, and I I think we've had our first eleven at Old Trafford. Once since two thousand and one, yeah. <laughs> and I we've think... normally got at least three players that we'd want picked pick missing. Yeah, I, I, I guess for me, one of the things I I've seen in the week has been talking about Arsenal's ruthlessness a bit, and you know, given the chances we created on Wednesday and Saturday. Um, and arguably at Bournemouth, actually. I mean, we should have beaten we should have beaten Bournemouth nine nil. Never mind Liverpool. Um, so I would just like to hope. Well, I do hope that um, we see a bit of ruthlessness from ourselves on on Sunday. And I think if that's there, then it's you know um, we've been threatening to hammer someone this season. Manchester United would be a 
a great place to d- deliver out a beating. But I just, um, I keep coming back to this. Uh, so we've seen so many Arsenal teams go to United and be flying. And of course, we we could talk about 2004, but why would we? Mm. Um, it, it just worries me a little bit. I think there's maybe some parallels, but equally, it was 18 years ago. Um, well, I, I, I think my, where I share concerns about the parallels is the fact that already we've seen I think in three different games this season, Manchester United have some very generous officiating on their behalf. I mean, to be fair, the last two games, McTominay hasn't deserved to be sent off. (laughs) Um, And the and the one hope is that the you know Casemiro is a better player, but he's less likely to maim one of your team just out of spite, whereas McTominay is just a nasty shit with diplomatic immunity. Um, I I think the other thing about the ruthlessness is last season. We got ourselves a massive break um, when Emil Smith Rowe scored that goal, and I can't remember the United player that had incapacitated David De Gea. De Gea. Um, you know, and they looked at that goal for about five minutes and tried to think of a reason to disallow it, and they couldn't. And we got yeah. ourselves a break, and then we did. It was like we felt sorry for them, and we didn't know what to do. And I think actually that night I was pleased with how we played but the lack of just going for the throat uh frustrated me somewhat and as we keep saying this is a young team and it it'll come um please 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 come on sunday this weekend yes yeah yeah right okay well i suppose i have to finish up by asking for a scoreline prediction Uh, to all to all uh i'm gonna say Oh, well, this is a prediction based on the idea that both Ramsdale and Erdegaard are available to play. <laughs> and, and if that's the case, I think we'll win 2-1. Uh, just because just United are starting to feel good about themselves and that might be not the worst time to play them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think something that does give me a bit of hope is we haven't conceded a goal away from home yet. So, you know, we've had some pretty weird things happen to us at home defensively this season but away yeah. it's okay so um, certainly it's free yeah. goals are plenty yeah uh, like uh, uh, two-thirds of the goals against us this season we've considered have been slightly freakish goals so uh one would hope that can't continue uh he says please okay well thanks listeners if you've got this far i hope you found something from this either enlightening or entertaining or at least you know get you thinking your own thoughts and, you know, if you want to write back and tell us why we're all idiots, that's fine by me. Uh, or indeed, just kind of continue the conversation online. Uh, you can find us at, at Lomekian, L-O-M-E-K-I-A-A-N. That's me. Or Paul at, what was it, Rock the Casbah 77? It is indeed. There we go. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, nothing else to say, so please give us three points at the weekend. I'm not a believer in any great higher power, but, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded. I can be persuaded. This week can be a good place to start. And, uh, yeah, thanks to you, Paul, obviously, for chatting to me throughout all of this. Pleasure. And, yeah, just have a wonderful weekend, everyone, uh, even outside of the football, but obviously the football would help. <laughs> all right, take care. Cheerio. Bye.